0: Hello, my name is Steve D'Agostino, and my co-host Ann Fernald and I welcome you to the Twice Over Podcast. Because to teach is to learn twice over. In this episode, The Classroom as a Tool, we are joined by Sam Haddad, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Fordham University, who shares his ideas about teaching and learning online and in person.
1: one of the themes that we're exploring in this second season of the podcast is kind of what are the lessons of the pandemic that you're taking forward, right? And so as you look at your lectures from a summer ago, are there patterns of things that you're like, oh, that doesn't work in a recorded lecture. Here's a lesson that I need about how, what works in pre-recorded lectures. What are you noticing there?
2: So it's funny, I don't know if I got the chance to really learn a lot in the last nine months, as it were, of the the regular academic year. But in terms of what I'm doing on these recorded lectures, I mean, I have a fairly standard format of, I'm I'm talking over the top of a PowerPoint and every sort of five, I mean, they're shortish, 10, 15, 20 minutes sort of uh, lectures, um, depending on the topic. And usually there's two or three writing exercises as we go that I asked them to stop the video, write something. And then at the end, I asked them to post not, not always all of their writing exercises, but at least one or two of them onto, onto a particular Blackboard thread and perhaps respond to each other's posts and things like that. So that's the kind of model. It works nicely. And what I found, I guess, one thing I, I guess coming into this summer, I started thinking more clearly about what do I want to do in our live sessions? Um, which is not just discussion based on my lectures. There are some live sessions, given the material, I wanted to do more of a, the kind of thing I do normally, which is kind, kind of lecturing, but kind of guiding a discussion and more interactive lecture, lecture, but do it on Zoom in a live session because it seemed to fit the material a bit better. Or I just And also, I mean, one thing with the summer is they have a ridiculous amount of work to do in such a short space of time. Every day is worth a full week in a normal semester. So there was just this necessarily needing to space it out a little bit and having to save some things for in class because it's just too much for people to finish class on Tuesday and then suddenly be reading and watching lectures for Wednesday. And so you've just got to empty out the material. I've thought more about, and I think this will actually is relevant for the fall because I'm teaching the same. It's the philosophy of human nature, the 1000 course I'm teaching this summer and I'm teaching that course in the fall. So one thing i'm actually trying to do is is um, really plan my fall class now as i teach right. this material even though i've taught it along a lot of many times i always sort of come to it slightly new and so i'm being much more intentional about what do i think i want to do in the fall when we're back in person
1: and when you think about that whether it's in terms of the syllabus or in terms of classroom policies, or more amorphously in terms of the ethos of the classroom, what are you thinking has changed for you after what we've been through in
2: the past year? Just recently, I've started thinking about the classroom as a tool.
1: Can you say more about that? I love that idea.
2: I, ha- I have this uh, this idea. I'm, I, I don't think I was the first person to ever think of it, but I think I, I think I thought of it myself. But I'm sure other people have said this. And I have a bad memory, so I probably read it somewhere. But I have this idea about like, teaching about learning so what 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 do we need to learn like we need we need material to learn from and we need tools to learn with and we need the desire to learn I think that's all I'm pretty sure (laughs) and I've started to think well what's a classroom in that in that and I think a classroom is a tool it's a tool to learn like it's a tool that aids in learning I mean it's different from other tools to learn are things like reading skills or listening skills they're sort of tools that the students really Kind of grasp and enact, and and you can teach them that, and they can develop those skills. A classroom, students don't necessarily—it's not a tool that they can hold in their hands, but it it is a tool for me as a teacher. I think I'm not quite sure if "tool" is the right word, but it's kind of a general enough word to try to to fit all these things in. So I've been trying to think about well, what does a classroom allow allow to happen, or allow allows not the right word. What what can a classroom facilitate or make easier or give? Um, or provide for students that they don't get if they're not in a classroom.
0: Thinking about teaching, thinking about the student experience in the classroom, what a classroom is for, really kind of digging into your methodology and trying to ground it in some way. Is this new as a result of the pandemic, or is it something that you're doing more with more intention, do you find?
2: So that, this is new for me, is to think about the classroom as a tool in that way, or to try to try to think about what does a classroom give us what does a classroom enable that we don't, we don't get elsewhere? What's so special about a classroom?
0: What we've heard a lot about in our conversations is the lack of prior experiences of Zoom. We've all been in classrooms since we're small children. So there's a sense of like what happens in that space that, that didn't exist in Zoom. No one knows what you're supposed to do. Like, what do we do before it officially starts? but maybe there's some of that interrogation that would be helpful when we return to face-to-face. What were my assumptions and what did I take for granted? Maybe rethinking the classroom is a good place to begin when thinking
2: about going back in the fall. I mean, one thing I've been thinking a bit about is, and I thought a lot about this during the pandemic, was I think one of the, the, the challenges of Zoom is that we don't know how desire works on Zoom and desire usually doesn't work on zoom because we don't know. Like I actually think in our culture, we, we actually know what, what the grammar of desire is on screens. And we have like billion dollar industries devoted to developing that, <laughs> but that costs a lot of money to do well. Um, and there's, there's all these techniques that directors use and, and cinematographers use to incite desire and, and editors use, et cetera. Um, and I feel like in the classroom, we implicitly know how the, what the grammar of desire in a classroom is, you know, when you move out of the podium, when you reach out to students, when you project your voice, when you zero in on someone, when you suddenly stop, all of these kind of moves you make to try to entice interest. And I think students know that too. And I, I mean, the other, I mean, one aspect of the classroom is that togetherness, which is very special, um, which is different from together on Zoom um, or very different from learning one-on-one um, or learning on one's own. So just to get back to it, I think one of the, the functions of a classroom or one, one it's the classroom is a tool for, for inciting desire to learn. I think that's the case. And I think a lot of us know that and know how to use it, but I've been starting to try to think about, well, how does that work actually?
0: You don't just magically appear in a classroom the way you do in Zoom. So there's all of this travel activity that happens on your way to the classroom that that's part of that broader context in which the class takes place that gets you in that sort of mental and emotional space
1: last march when we had to go online we thought oh we're teaching on screen we need to work on videography remember we had all these conversations hours and hours about making beautiful lectures. And I think people were imagining that they would be producing PBS, BBC One quality documentaries, you know, TED Talks about their and very quickly, it became clear that to do an hour of that is a 100 hours of labor, that 100 hours of labor does not translate into anything like learning. And so that's one thing we learned about the difference between a desire on a screen and what learning is right so there are so many steps between those two things and then thinking about the classroom as a totally different kind of space where we have all kinds of things we can do like walking in and out of the room as you were saying Sam like you know walking away from the podium you know making I, I've been obsessed recently with thinking about the fact that we can't make eye contact with a single, with the specific person in a Zoom, right? You can't turn your head to the left and focus on even just a row or the kind of the rightish half of a Zoom screen.
2: This is really interesting. I have not thought of this before because we learn, I think we learn a lot from TED Talks. Like, so we can learn a lot from really well-produced videos. Absolutely. But I don't think I'll put it this way. I forgot the name of the person, which is terrible, but I remember having a conversation um, with someone at Columbia University several years ago, and I think he was, I think his role was something like the head of digital educational learning. So probably very similar to yours, Steve, in some way. Um, I don't know the exact role he had, but I remember, and this was like a good eight, nine years ago, um, sort of at the height of MOOCs and things like that, I feel like it was. And I remember asking this like, so, so what's the deal? You know, what, what's the deal with the internet and learning? What, what should we be doing? What's, and he, I, he said something very profound. He said, the internet is a fantastic tool for learning but a very bad tool for teaching. And I was like, okay, that's really good. Like, I think we can learn a lot from the internet and we can learn a lot. This is that like materials for learning. We have the web, but, but we've had libraries forever. Like people can learn anything they want. And in terms of access now, um, there are still issues with access. But the access is so much wider than it has been ever in history, and all of that. So people can learn from TED talks, but I don't think we necessarily teach when we're doing a TED talk. What matters is the personal connection, um, and that, thats manifest in the being able to catch someone's eye, like their eyes, and actually meet their gaze. I've been in my department for a few years now. I've been teaching out. We have a graduate pedagogy seminar, like a one-semester seminar that our graduate students take. Our PhD students uh, in the year before they're going to teach for the first time of their own Fordham classes, at least teach for the first time at Fordham. And I feel like I've, I find myself just more and more sort of it's so it's sort of so simple and complex. It's that like students want you to care like that, and it doesn't have to even be about them. <laughs> like, but they want you to care about something, the material. Maybe you really care about these ideas, and that that really matters. Or maybe it's them and their well-being, or their learning, or their performance, whatever. But that kind of care, and to me, that's about that, a personal connection, that you're, you're creating a personal connection by showing you care about something that is being shared. And if it's the material that you care about and you're sharing that with them, then that is the kind of connection that I think is integral to teaching. And that can really help learning, but it's not necessary for learning because people can always go on the internet and watch a TED talk. I mean, there's thousands of great philosophy videos out there or they could go read books and they're fantastic.
0: I think sometimes we forget the real impact that we could have on our students because they're
2: invisible to us. One idea of a university is is a community of scholars and the university has so many sort of different ideas on top of each other that create this strange thing called a university. There are professional schools, There are liberal arts colleges, and they're all housed under the same umbrella term of university, but that's actually by design. That part is design, that a university has always been these multiple different things coming together. And that is the difference between being a student in a university as opposed to just learning it on your own or or reading it in a book, or or universities do other things too. They select and they, they accredit, and they do all sorts of other kinds. They have many functions. But that sort of community of scholar idea, scholars' idea, is really important. And I, it's interesting because there's a tension because I, I think it's probably been around for a while. Um, but there's a strong discourse in thinking about teaching and learning that we ought not be trying to re- reproduce ourselves as professors. That that's a mistake. That that um, the successful student is a professor or someone who's going to become a professor. And yet, I think we have to we still have to be professors. We still have to be scholars when we're interacting with students because that's what we're good at. But that's also what we're offering. We're offering this community of scholars and we're inviting people to be a part of it, even if it's only for a few years. So it's, it doesn't, we have to give up the idea that they should be here for life or they should want to be here for life. But even if it's just for a few years, there's a, there's a lot, lot of value there. At least that's the commitment I take it of the liberal arts.
1: I mean, I love the distinction you're making between recognizing not everyone's going to become a professor, but remaining committed to playing that role for our students instead of acting like, oh, the thing I've dedicated my life to to is trivial, doesn't really matter. Right. I mean, there's a kind of way in which in order to relate to people whom you anticipate won't actually get a Ph.D., you shed all that you care about and all that you, you know, devoted your life to and pretend like it actually doesn't matter that much to you. And one of the things that consistently surprises my students is they, they say, I know you're very busy to me and it's true. I'm very busy. And I say, well, I want you to come to my office hours. I say, actually my job, the reason that I work here is to serve you and you have a right to my time and you should come to my office hours. It is true, I'm very busy, but I will make time for you. (laughs) You know, and the oh, really? I'm like, yes, absolutely. Like, if you wanna come talk to me about your life, about literature, about what classes to take next semester, you are simply asking me to do the
2: job of being a professor. You care about that, that's the point. And if if you didn't care about that, why should they? (laughs) Why (laughs) on earth should they care about? what you're teaching or or asking them to do if you sort of are showing disdain for it. Um, It's sort of like...
1: I wanted to pivot a little bit and talk about the Mellon Grant that you had a few years ago. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what the grant was, what you learned from the project, a little more about your involvement in the project and kind of maybe how that, if any of that has, has helped you move through this period.
2: Yes. So the, the grant, it was a subgrant of a larger Mellon grant. So it was a large Mellon grant that was entitled Critical Theory in the Global South, a curriculum initiative. I think that was the exact title. So Mellon gave a million dollars uh, to this. The grant as a whole was it was focused it was to focus on critical critical theory traditions from the global south. And it was the different projects were focused primarily in, in Latin America, uh, South Africa were the main sort of, I think the main geographic areas, different areas of Latin America, though, several different countries. And, and, and it really was, it was a curriculum initiative. So the idea behind it was that critical theory has been taught in the, in the North and in the South um, for quite a while, but the idea was trying to get into curriculum in the North in whatever these terms exactly mean, more engagement with critical theory from the South, from the global South. So that was the basic idea. And our sub we entitled uh, Hassa Escuela, and, which, and then the, the English slight mistranslation of that was given was inventing school. a more literal translation would be producing school or making school. But the point of our grant was the idea, well, well it's not enough just to like, stick theorists from the Global South in your syllabus. We have to think about the way we teach. So we were really, our smaller grant was much more focused on techniques of pedagogy that have been developed in, and we were focused on Latin America primarily and the Caribbean that have been developed across the Americas in, in lots of ways in the critical theory tradition that changed the way we, we teach. So that was our sort of very definite kind of goal. We were focused more on technique and um, as opposed to content necessarily or thinkers. So we had two workshops. One at Fordham, which is the one you're talking about, Anne, and then the following year we had a workshop at Westchester University, where one of the co-investigators was. And we also have just finished up a journal issue of. Uh, it's called Lapis. Is the journal L A P I Z, the the journal of the Latin American Philosophy of Education Society. We have an issue um, that's just been published that has papers that came out of out of our workshops or sort of related projects. Um, they're not exactly what people presented at the workshops. So it was a three-year project. And what was it about just to say, well, this idea of hasse Escuela, which we took from Walter Cohen's work, but he's, I mean, it's his term in a certain way, but it's, it's from a work of his about Simon Rodriguez, who was a 19th century educator, who traveled across the world, but primarily the work he did was across the Americas. He was actually Simon Bolivar's teacher and Bolivar called him the Socrates of Caracas. And Rodriguez, spent his life traveling. He lived quite a long time, and it seems. And the way Cohen has a whole book on his of his called on him called the Inventive Schoolmaster. And Cohen is possibly taking slight liberties with history because it has a fable like quality the way he tells it, but the story is Co- uh, not Cohen. Rodriguez travels and sets up schools across the Americas and pri- and primarily across South America. But he traveled all across the world through North America, Europe but he returns to South America and then is setting up schools wherever he goes. And there's schools that are open to everyone in the 19th century. So these were really, he's kind of a, a proponent of popular education and the schools all basically fail. <laughs> they all, none of them stayed open. He would go to a town, he would set up a school, he would, and then he would leave and they would usually close and he met opposition and that. So it's not a really story of success that way, but I'm um, sorry, I'm saying a lot here, but Cohen sort of talks about how, I mean, there's lots of themes in his work on this, but it, it raises the idea of really us thinking about, well, what is a school and, and why should schools be permanent? And what does that actually mean? And I've been thinking a lot about that, actually. Um, it's, it's particularly challenging because Rodriguez is a teacher who travels, so he's not rooted. And one of the terms in Cohen's work is his errant. He has this errantry. Um, and and I think a lot about that, because in the in sort of contemporary academia, the goal is to get rooted. The goal is to get a job and stop moving like it's it's terrible that people have to continually move. So it's challenging in that way. But what is interesting is our students are constantly moving like they only come in and out of our institutions for three four years at a time or however long it is. Um, so it, it sort of challenges my ideas of of that about, well, what are we aiming for in education? Uh, um, it seems like. St- Often for our students the goal might be stability themselves. Um, but that's not necessarily that doesn't mean that the education itself has to be stable in that way.
1: I just finished reading Bell Hooks's Teaching to Transgress, and she talks about Palo Frera a lot. And one of the things she opens the book, so it's a collection of essays, and she opens the book by saying, you know, I was having terrible, intense nightmares of anxiety when I was about to get tenure and talks about how she sees herself more as a philosopher and a writer than as a tenured academic. And then toward the end of the book, and this came out you know, probably 25 years ago now, she says, well, the reason, the way I've made peace with my career as a thinker is to move from institution to institution. That's what she likes. And she says, that's really what would make being a professor a sustainable job. And boy, is that impossible. Well, let me say this, we, the two-tiered system where we have adjuncts and instructors who are absolutely not vested in the institution, right, who don't have any stability, move all the time, but not in a way that's fruitful or generative for them, in a way that's kind of panicked and about trying to get an income that's, sustain- that's sufficient. And then those of us who have the privilege of tenure have no mobility. Or almost no mobility, right? And so how do we, even without being able to move, inhabit that kind of flexible or mobile or moving or errant mindset, right? What would that look like?
2: One way I think that, that emerges in the book is in this idea of school, that so Cohen is working in a tradition of there are other thinkers who have developed this idea too. And I, I take it, I, I haven't done enough research on this and I actually want to, I take it part of what they're arguing against is, is thinking about someone like Ivan Illich with the de-schooling and that kind of movement. And, and school in, in lots of ways is a bad word and there's a lot wrong with ideas of school. I mean, we use it to. It's it's a synonym for discipline. As when it's a verb, you school someone, and it's sort of these bad things. And it strikes me. It's always I find it interesting that in the US, people refer to university as school. Um, We don't. I mean, I I grew up in Australia and went to university there. Like we don't call uh, university school. Like school is school when you're younger. (laughs) Um, We call university uni, so we still have a diminutive for it. There are some bad things about school, and there there are some problems with school. And someone like Illich has a really really powerful critique of school and school is a disciplinary mechanism it is a sorting mechanism for society it is a basic mechanism of exclusion so cohen and, and some other thinkers that he's kind of working out of are trying to to recuperate the notion and they de- he develops or they develop an idea of school as it's based on the, the greek word skole which means leisure and leisure time which has a bad connotation because it's the time of the, for the aristocrats, the people who can afford it can go to school, can have this time away from the, the world of production um, and the broader society. But the idea of inventing school or, or making school is to try to create those conditions for our students where, in, and I think that's getting back to this, the classroom, like what is a classroom? We come together, and we, we try to suspend the outside world, even though that's impossible. And there are problems if we just ignore the, the outside world. And that's why Hooks's work, I think, is actually really important here because she does such a good job of trying to engage questions of class and race in the classroom. But there's still a sense in which what's happening in the classroom is in a certain sense cut off from the world. That is not, even though a big function of degrees and, and rightly so with the horrific debt regimes we impose on our students, are to get a job, etc. there's a way in which when we're, when we're in a classroom, it's a chance to study together. And that's it. Like we're studying, we're studying something together. Sometimes it's for the sake of something else, but it can also be for its own sake or, or for the sake of study and, and of communal study. Um, so I think maybe that can be a way of getting back to this idea of errantry or of movement in, in our own practice, even if we're tenured professors Um, it doesn't address how to help the people who are errant and don't want to be because they're they're stuck in the bottom of the hierarchy and have to move Um, but it'll basically the idea would be school is not something we can presuppose it's not the buildings it's not the institution it's something we have to invent continually invent collectively and I like hooks's work here too because she's very good on the responsibility of the teacher to have authority and to embrace their authority and to use it. I, as a teacher, have the responsibility to provide the material we're gonna learn from. But one thing a classroom allows us is to allow the students to bring things there too and to learn from each other and to generate material collectively.
1: I love Hooks for that because she she's very clear that like if we're gonna sit in a circle because we think that's a more equitable way to have a conversation, I as the teacher am the one who makes that decision. Some random I mean I mean this with all respect, but a random sophomore can't make that decision unless we agree that it's okay with us to sit in the circle, right? And so if you don't recognize the difference in authority between you as professor and the students, it's a failure. And you know, and so you can't pretend that everyone is of the same status in that space.
2: One thing I've learned, I guess, about the, um, that I've appreciated and learned through the pandemic was this, we kind of, I felt like we settled on this over that last summer of what the hell are we going to (laughs) do? How is this going to happen? I I feel like one formula that sort of came up, probably didn't ever rise to the status of a formula was the idea of not lowering standards, but being more flexible. in how those standards are met, um, be it in terms of time timeframes, deadlines, and things like that, and being more flexible in what it means to meet the standards. Um, but I do really think that. there's something really important there about not lowering the standards. But I, in terms of thinking about a more inclusive environment in the classroom, I, I would focus more, I mean, I'm not saying that anyone thinks that they should lower standards. Um, So I have to be careful setting up a straw man. So I'll just put it positively. I think the idea of the flexibility that we learned over the last year, I think can be carried forward um, in interesting ways. And I think we need to be open to what, I mean, that's what flexibility means. It means being open to change, open to different possibilities going forward. And that's something I've learned in the last year. I think that I can be more open in that way. I wanna ask you just
1: one question to close. I'm committed to this final question about um, a teacher who meant something to you and who that person was and why they inspired you and this could be I use the word teacher deliberately because it could be anyone from you know a babysitter or a elementary school teacher to your dissertation advisor at uni or I guess you went to you went to graduate school in the states so right. at college here in the states. Mm-hmm school,
2: grad school, school, like grad school, um, I guess one person that comes to mind and maybe it's to do with what we've been talking about and what I've been thinking about all these last few weeks is I had a high school math teacher it was in it was in my last year of high school which in Australia is called college the last two years of high school was college so I was um, but there's something about him he was just so consistent as an individual and it's I mean he was one of these people who had a reputation in the school of being severe and had taught there for many years but there was something important about that too—that he was consistent from year to year, and it, it wasn't—it wasn't like a punishing thing at all. Actually, he was quite kind. There was something about his consistency and rigor, and he really demanded rigor. And it was good in a mathematics class—that's what you want. Um, but as a person, um, and it's making me think about our earlier conversations about authority. Like there was just something very dependable. Um, and you know, I was seventeen at the time, um, so it's probably good to have people in your life that when you're that age who just you can totally count on, they're going to do their thing. They'll, they'll, they've got their shtick and, and you can really trust them. And I think that, yeah, when I'm thinking now about the role of a teacher and what, what one can do, I think maybe that, that's an important thing to keep in mind. But from the student's perspective, having just a poll there who is dependable, trustworthy, that you can count on is very, very important. I think we did learn that in the last year as well. Uh, when we got feedback that seemed to be when students were saying what did they care most about was clarity <laughs> it's like what are they saying i just want to know what i need to do and i want it just to remain that's because the world is so tumultuous so i'll i'll, I'll say that um as, as a very influential
1: that's great and that's fascinating and i think in all the conversations that we've had that's a unique way of valuing a great teacher so that's really really interesting to me, because I, I'm sure that you're right. And I live with two teenagers right now. And I can see that they really value those qualities that you're describing, right? I mean, that's really important for late adolescence to have that kind of stability. And I think it's really hard for us to remember on the other side of the age, that we need to perform that even though we often don't feel it, right? so that's it. That's really interesting. Sam, we kept you over. I'm sorry, but it was it's your fault. You were really sorry. interesting. It was a good conversation.
0: Twice Over Podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, with new episodes appearing twice each week. For host and guest bios and show notes, please visit our website, twiceoverpodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Twice over one or email us at Twiceoverpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.